This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Paulina Simons, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm so happy to be with you here. Oh, I, I'm ecstatic. Do you know sometimes you wake up in the morning and being a Monday uh, morning, you think, oh, what's on for the week? And then I grabbed my schedule before even getting out of bed and I saw your name and I remembered, you know, that. But that's that how time. I felt when I saw your name on the itinerary. I said, I can't believe Cheryl is my first, yeah. my first podcast, you know, my first port of call, so to speak, when I get here. Yeah, so I was super excited. I thought, well, that makes for a very good day, having Paulina in. Mine too. Um, So I know that our listeners and our readers love you. They tell me that a lot in in our Facebook comments, Um, but I am going to introduce you for those few people in the world that don't know who you are. Paulina Simons is the best-selling writer of the Bronze Horseman trilogy, Tully, Red Leaves, 11 Hours, plus many more, including her new End of Forever saga. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about that today too. Paulina was born in Leningrad uh, in Russia in the mid-70s. Her family immigrated to the United States. Growing up in Russia, Paulina dreamed of becoming a writer. Her dream was put on hold as she learned English and overcame the shock of a new culture. After graduating from university and after various jobs, including working as a financial journalist and as a translator, Paulina wrote her first novel, Tully. I sold that as a bookseller. Yeah, that's nice. How many years ago was that? 26. Yeah. 25 years since it was published, but 26 since I sold it. Yeah, and I was working on the shop floor. There you go. And here we are sitting here here today. here we are. That book, book was published in 20 countries and translated into 18 languages. Many of Paulina's novels have reached international bestseller lists in in countries including Australia and New Zealand. Apart from her novels, Paulina has also written a cookbook, published two children's books and a memoir. That's a huge body of work. Yeah, when you look at it now that I, now with these End of Forever books, it'll be 15 novels that I've written. That seems like a lot. It does you know, seem like, like a lot. Like sometimes other writers, they have a whole, and I'm not done. I have, I'm like bursting with creative energy. I have four more books that I'm thinking about. Three until just last month when I suddenly got an idea for uh, for a fourth one when I was in, in London promoting actually The Tiger Catcher. So, you know, like the ideas are still here. I'm still in the middle of my creative life. So I feel like I'm still not even close to being done yet, you know. Well, I mean, do writers ever, storytellers ever, are they ever done? I guess some are. Yeah, some some, are, some absolutely, yeah. yeah. Sometimes, well, I mean, and also some writers only have one book in them or maybe yeah. two, right? Yeah. Um, but for me, this is like my life and I always, you know, ideas breed new ideas and new ideas. So there's always something percolating, let's say. Do you know what I like um, about your books? I mean, there's a lot I like about them, but one of the things I like, I mean, very often when I finish a book, 
it takes me a long time to leave the characters because I grieve for them, you know. Mm-hmm. I wonder what's happened mm-hmm. to them after I've put the book down. But when I read a Paulina Simons book, it usually I meet that character again and then I don't have to wonder what happened to them because <laughs> you're going to tell yeah. me and I quite like that. Yeah, sometimes I. it's surprising how many of my books have been followed up with yeah. continuations of their stories that I... I mean, it, it just so happened that way. I mean, The Bronze Horseman was the first one, and I did originally set out to write only one book, but I, I myself couldn't leave them behind. No. The difference with End of Forever is that initially the, the entire saga was going to be huge. I, it just felt huge. It was it felt epic. So I, I knew as I started writing it uh, very quickly afterwards that it was not going to be able to be done in one book. So you, and you, you intentionally set out to write a three? So I didn't intentionally set out to write three. What I intentionally set out was to tell this story and the story just happened to just have a lot of moving parts to it a lot of things that happened in it a lot of adventure uh, and so a lot of uh, different different parts uh, because it's both historical and modern you know and to combine these things and to bring them to life I knew was going to take words on the page yeah so okay. I just yeah so um, and it's a treat for the readers because they've all come out within a year haven't they well yeah only Very because close. it took me five years to write them and we had them yeah. so we could have waited but we said why you why? know you are going to read the first one and you're going to be like where's the rest of it and by the time you read the second one Beggar's Kingdom which just came out you, 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 I mean I'm hoping that you'll be clamoring like I'm, like my daughter was when she called me up and said mom are you kidding me where's where's the last book and I'm like well it's not it's not ready for you yet it's going to be ready in October and she was like no what do you mean October I'm your daughter give it to me right now <laughs> yeah. Yeah. all right tell me I want to um I want to talk about how it all started okay? because you have such an interesting life. So you were born in Leningrad, as yeah. we said earlier in, in our introduction. So tell me, because I feel, I mean, I wasn't born in, I was born in Australia, but my family, in a way, we were over there and then came back. Anyway, long story short, I came, my memory of Sydney is arriving as a six-year-old. Okay. Yeah. And that, I think, is very formative. Yes. So talk to me about And you about remember that. that. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, you remember it. Right. I mean, I couldn't speak English. I mean, I remember going to school not being able to speak or understand English. Wait, where were you from originally? I'm My sorry. parents are Lebanese. Oh, that's right. They're of Le- course yeah. they were. So yeah. you remember that real well. well. This is why you, well, because six years old, like me, you're early enough. Before yes. before you reach 13, you can basically learn the new language with, and speak it without an accent. But after you reach puberty, you can't anymore. Okay. Yeah, that's what happens. So that's how you can almost tell when people came to this country, even when they're fluent. Uh, oh, yeah, they, that's yeah, interesting. It's, it's in, yeah, but oh, so I came when I was when I was ten, and I remember that like probably like you remember coming from Lebanon. I I just remember that talk very vividly. Talk to me vividly. about that. So talk to me about your childhood in Russia or Leningrad, and then talk to me about coming over and the decision to migrate to America. So, um, so it's like my life was divided into a before and after. Yeah. My dad picked me up from school, and we were walking home. And he says, look, I have to talk to you about something. You know how I was, he says, when I was telling you that we were moving to Moscow, because they had said, well, look, we're leaving Leningrad, we're moving to Moscow for a couple of months. His job, he said, was taking him there. And so they didn't really explain too much to me, but they said, look, we're going to be moving to Moscow. And for two or three weeks, this was the thing. But then he took me from school and said, you know, we've been telling you that 
we're moving to Moscow, but it's not true. We're not moving to Moscow. We're going to America. <gasps> and I still remember, because he was holding my hand, I still remember those words, how it made me feel, what I... I, I it's given me goosebumps. Yeah, but I, I couldn't... It was so inconceivable at that point because you literally kind of are walking and walk down Nevsky Prospect where we were for a few, a few minutes silently, and then I said, uh, "Will there be sharks?" Because of course, in the in the Soviet schools, this is what they told us about America: you never want to go there because this is a place where sharks eat people, and the government doesn't care about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's the first thing that I I thought of. But then, but I guess that was just my you know my initial thing. But I, I mean, I just knew at that point that everything in my life was going to be completely different. It was just a remarkable, remarkable thing. I didn't know at this point, by the way, that my dad had been in, in prison. I didn't know that he was in the gulag. I, I didn't learn any of that until we left Russia and got to Vienna. And why did he want to leave? So, because he thought his life was at a dead end there. So he had been, uh, you know, he studied at the university to be, to be uh, a lawyer. But then after he was arrested, and that he was stripped of his, of course, his law, uh, his, no, his law license. And after he came back from the gulag, which you know was like a three-year period, he was then exiled, and he was working at a factory, kind of you know melting metal down for telephone poles. So that was so he knew that he was not going to be able to have a life, and and he wanted a different life for himself, and and also for me. He just knew that I was going to be you an only child? at that point. I was, yeah. yeah. I, and how did your mother feel about it? Well, so my dad was was the the, the oh, yeah he was yeah. larger than life. So when my dad said we're going to America, my mother said, "When do I pack?" You know, mm-hmm. um, you know she had a harder time when we got here because she really did not speak the language and she wasn't like me. And my mother was uh, an engineer economist in the Soviet Union, and that's a, a common story with a lot of the Russians who immigrate. They're doctors or engineers or chemists, you know, they're and professionals. then they they're prof- exactly, and then they come. Uh, as professionals to a new country, but they don't have the skills, the language, the license, the degrees. That's nothing. happening all the time. All the time, everywhere. Where you, you know, people who clean our houses are doctors. Yeah. Where you know, and it, it really causes a conflict inside the person, and it caused a conflict inside my mother because she was a an incredibly smart, well-read. Um, a woman who was incredibly proud of her professional accomplishments, yeah, and it was very tough for her, but. She, you know, she learned language and she became, uh, worked at a bank and, you know, she got... So tell me, so where did you come to in the United States? So we came, so we first went from Russia to uh, Budapest, uh, uh, I want to say Hungary, right? And then to Vienna. And after Vienna... We went to Rome. Over a few years or over This is over a few months. Right. Over a few months. And then in Rome is the place where you sort of, it's like a a waypoint where you have to wait for permission for the United States to give you a visa to enter the United States. So you you sit there. Some people waited a really long time. Some people wait like a year, maybe more. Incredibly difficult, isn't it? Yeah, so you just have to, you live in like these pension houses where, I mean, they've set it up. Like there are organizations who, 
basically lend you the money to do this, and then when you get to the United States and you get a job, you pay them back, and that's right. what we had to do. Right. And so, yeah, and so, but we, we were only there for two months in Rome. My father says it was not nearly long enough. It was like a honeymoon with my mom that Aww. he never never had. And then we came to America on Thanksgiving. Yeah, it was like right two days so before Thanksgiving. So and tell me what your first impression was. So we just, we arrived in, in New York at JFK. I think it, maybe it wasn't called JFK back then. I don't know, but... Um, uh, and uh, we went. We went to this little dinky hotel. With all I remember in this hotel was like horrible, awful carpets that had like <laughs> cigarette burn marks and horrible stains. Like it wasn't a nice place at all. But we literally came on a Tuesday, and on Friday we already moved into our little apartment in Woodside, Queens, because my dad uh, got a job. Uh, right then and there, we uh, and we moved into this little apartment. I still remember it cost us one hundred and seventy-five dollars a month, and my dad didn't want to move into an area that was primarily Russian. That's why we didn't go to Brooklyn or Brighton Beach. He moved to an Italian area because he just wanted a fresh start, a new life. You know, he says, "What's the point of living with the Russians? I lived with the Russians back in the Soviet Union. I want to live." And so he, we came and and, and so could you and, speak English? So no, I could not speak English. So what's I should your be like memory here. of that? So what my memory is that, so this was, this is how it all happened. So on Friday, we moved into our apartment. And on Tuesday, so the following Tuesday, four days later, my dad uh, went with me to the local public school and said, what do I do to enroll my daughter in a public school? And they literally took me by the hand and said, come with me. And they literally just took me to class. That's how it was. And I went to fifth grade and I sat there and 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 the teacher said some words and people looked at me funny and, and that was it. And I, and I went to, you know, English as a second language classes. So you very quickly as a kid, you must remember that too as a six-year-old, right? You just... I don't pick, remember when the language oh, you came. Oh, well, you just pick, you pick it up you pick almost it up. instantly. Yeah, that's right. But I learned that if I hid how well I knew English, that everybody would leave me alone. They wouldn't ask me to do work. They wouldn't grade <laughs> my papers. They wouldn't ask me to do anything on tests. I just simply sat there, stared out of the window, daydreamed, which is what I now do for a living. And I, I continued sort of living that life. Um, until like a year went by and my sixth grade teacher caught on. She's like, no, 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 I see something going on there. I see what you're doing. Yeah. So she didn't let it go. But yeah, but yeah so that's so what I So talk to me about story in that time. So when did you think you were going to be a storyteller? When do you think that story So I didn't planted? know. Oh, so that didn't come until much, much later. The fact that I wanted to be a storyteller and the fact that I could become a storyteller or two different, you know, two different yes. things. So my dreams were always to become a novelist. That, that, that was the only dream of my life. When's and that, that, first memory? that happened back when I was still in maybe five or six or seven years old. I, I remember reading, um, uh, what was I reading at that time? The Three Musketeers and Charles Dickens. And I remember. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. 
With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In Russian, yeah. As I said, I read Oliver Twist in the original Russian. You know, that's how it was, yeah. And Jules Verne and all these adventure stories. But particularly, I, I guess I want to say it was Alexander Dumas because the way he created that world is I wasn't a little kid in a little tiny village with no electricity or running water. I was in, you know, 15th, 16th century France. I was, mm. and I was in love with D'Artagnan. And I, their stories of their adventures just, they re- transformed my life. They remade me. And I remember thinking how, wouldn't that be an amazing thing, a dream of my life to grow up and tell stories that might move other people like these stories have affected and moved me. So I wanted to do this, but but like I said, I had no idea whether or not I could, whether or not I had the skills or the stories, whether or not I, I... I really had any ability at all to become what I wanted to become. Let's Uh, talk about a sliding doors moment. Imagine your life that you didn't immigrate, that you didn't move to the United States. Do you think you still would have been a writer? No, I don't think so. Because because most of the people that we grew up with, that I grew up with, my father's friends, my own friends, (laughs) I, I say this as a joke, but it's sort of, you know, tragically funny. Everybody in Russia wants to be a writer. That's like, this is what they know because we all grew up with books. And when you grow up with something like that, that's what you know, right? You don't grow up with TV, which is why my kids who grew up on TV and film, they want to go into the movie business or they want to go into the television business. But when you don't know that world, you then want to go into the world of books because mm-hmm. that's what affects you the most, you mm-hmm. see. So I, and most, I know that most of the people who are still left in Russia did not become writers, you know. They, because not everyone can. Yes, and also because maybe I think the opportunities probably uh, are not there for, you know, for, for, for that kind, especially for maybe for novels, certainly for journalism or for other kind of writing they are. But my father's friends are like poets and stuff. But what do you, you know, it's, it's harder to do that. Okay, so you're, um, so you're in the U.S. Yeah, so I came to the U.S. So I did not speak uh, yeah. the language and did not read for pleasure until I was 12 years old. Oh, and I thought... So you had a two years break. And it was, well, no, I still continued to read my stories in, in oh, Russian yeah. because I was thinking that I would never be able to read for pleasure in English because reading in English was such a chore God. because every every word you didn't know the words and you didn't know how they were formed and they meant nothing to you inside whereas the Russian was like you would read it and all I would do is feel the words I couldn't feel anything until Charlotte's Web oh. by E.B. White formative oh. that was my thing I think we might have read that at the same time the same time. time right that book just opened I finally read something that I just loved. And right after that, I wrote my first novel. It was a 78-page handwritten story. I was 12 years old called The Legend of Miramani. And it was a cross between um, the three works of art that I admired most, which was Star Trek, Rosemary's Baby, 
Uh, and the Great Gatsby. <laughs> so it was a combination of, of, of these things. I knew so little about life in the story. My, my heroine uh, gets pregnant, but because the, the love of her life dies, she remains pregnant for five years. I yeah. thought this was possible, that grief could make you uh, not have your child. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, so that was, that was like my first kind of foray into, into, into that. And then, I, and then I wrote something else again when I was 14. But then, and then life took over. You know, you're, you're a kid and, and, you're a and a teenager in high school. You literally, you barely read, you know nothing. You're going out with friends or just doing whatever stupid things you're doing, you know. And, and, and the dream is, and having fun a little bit. And, but, but, and daydreaming, you're lonely. I was, you know, I was, my sister was born when I was 14 and a half. And so that, that you know, that was good. And, and and better for me and then we moved from Queens we moved, built a little house and moved out to Long Island and we stayed there and then I went I went to college at 17 and again so it was all just a dream talk to me about belonging how did you feel about belonging yeah so I had that uh, you know that conflict between really wanting to be the thing that I wasn't and also not wanting to be the thing that I was. Yeah. So I really wanted to be an American and yeah. I really did not want to be Russian. Really, really, really. So I just had just very conflicted feelings about my Russian family and their Russian ways and their Russian accents. I, all my friends were so American and their moms had peanut butter in the cupboard and, and they were like, oh, Paulina, you want some cookies? I just made them. I'm like, why am I, we have liverwurst in our fridge, you know? My, my friends come over and they're like, I can make you a liverwurst sandwich, you know? Just, I hear you, I hear you. We you, were going you know, to, oh, well, we, I was going to school with falafel rolls, you know, and I was so mortified and embarrassed. But a, a thought hit me the other day. I was, I've always struggled with, you know, because uh, in Australia, I, people call me a Lebanese Australian. But when I went to Lebanon for the first time after all those years, back in 1989, I really had a yearning to go back and to see, because, you know, my parents, mm -hmm. my families were there and, mm -hmm. you know, my cousins, first cousins are there. And I had a, just a total yearning for going somewhere where I thought that I would completely belong because I don't feel that here. And do you know, my grandmother introduced me to her friends as Cheryl the Australian and that just broke my heart. Did you, do you feel that? Well, when I went back to Russia in 1998, I mean, I went back for the Bronze Horseman and I went back with my dad. I didn't go back to see if I belonged in Russia because I knew that I didn't. But when I was there, I, there was a different thing that happened with me because I, when I was there, I saw the life that I would have had had yes. we not left. And that, that broke my heart because all the people that we loved and that were still there, they all still lived that life. And I knew that that would have been my life. And my life was so great. We were living in Texas. We just built a house every day. It was so bright with sunshine. We had yeah. to wear shades, you know. And then we just went back to my old communal apartment where everything was exactly the same and the toilets were still the same and the floors were all warped and, and, and the walls were all leaking water. It was just horrible. Mm. And nobody was getting paid. Uh, they were still having all these problems in 98. I think maybe it's better now, but in 98, um, Leningrad did not look. And was that look. the first time you had been And back. the only time. 
and the only in the time. only time, yeah. Oh, wow. So okay. I didn't feel that I didn't. I was an American, but I had very much a Russian soul, and that Russian soul was really wrecked by what I what I found in Russia. So when I came back, it was really terrible because I didn't feel like I belonged now in my beautiful life. Yeah. But I knew I also it's didn't conflict, belong in 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 the Russian life. Yeah. So where was my place? Yeah, I think a lot of my books, I think, reflect that, that a lot of my characters' journey also to find their place in the world, to find the place where they belong, their identity. You know, it's, it's okay. interesting. All right, so I want to go back. So you went to college. Went to college. Yeah. And, and then... Um, when did you write Tully? Tell me how uh, that So I went to, went to college, went to then a, a British college, met my first husband there, then we got married, came back to Britain. I worked in London, and in the middle of working as a financial journalist in London, I wrote the short story that eventually would become Tully. And so I didn't actually write Tully until I came returned back to return to the United States when I was twenty um, six, and then wrote Tully when I was twenty seven and twenty eight, and then sold Tully when I was twenty nine. How did you sell it? So we sent it to uh, two agents who rejected it. The third agent said, don't show it to anyone else because I'm reading it and loving it. While she was reading it, she showed it to uh, a publisher who had, was just starting his new imprint and he was looking for a launch book because the launch book he had had just fallen through. So he was literally looking for something else and there was Tully. And Tully became his launch title for his new imprint called A Wyatt Book for St. Martin's Press. And that wow. was in 1993. Who's now, uh, that's Pam McMillan, isn't it? Yeah, Pam McMillan now bought him, yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and, and so how did you feel about that? Because that was a very, very successful first novel. As a and first that doesn't novel, happen all the time. It doesn't happen all the time, but it also sets you up for feeling like every book is, everything is going to be like that. Yeah. Every book is going to be reviewed by everyone. Every book is going to be looked at, and that also doesn't happen. So that makes you feel like, wait a minute, you know, what, what about this? So when I wrote The Bronze Horseman, for example, I was like, well, they're all going to love this because Tully was a difficult book. It had a difficult character in the middle of it. It had difficult things that happened to it, things that were hard to speak about in a review. But I thought the Bronze Horseman, you've got love, you've got war, you've, you've got, got extremely history. attractive people, you've yes. got history, you've got a personal story, plus you've got this incredible, you know, story set against the background of, of, of war. And yet it didn't happen because people, it was too long. People did not read the book. Even the few reviewers, they only reviewed part one. They never got to the blockade of Leningrad. So I knew they never read the book because if you read that book and you don't say in your review something about the, the, the suffering of, of Leningrad, it's like, it's, like we, it's like writing a book about the London Blitz and not mentioning the Blitz. You know, you, yeah. you know that the person who was reviewing it did not read the book. So I was just very sort of... But it did take, take off. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, you know why it took off? Because of the, of the readers. It didn't take off because of the reviewers. I love that. It was the readers who did it. It, it was is. it was it was the thing they and and still you know it's now and it's like it's twenty fourth or twenty fifth printing in the yeah. United States and it's only my readers I still so now it's been twenty years since I wrote the Bronze Horseman and now I have a new a new flux of 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 you know of my of the daughters of the mothers who had read it originally. Yeah. I was saying to my readers the other day through our Facebook Live segment, we do a segment um, and it's just called What Are You Reading? every second Thursday at 3 o'clock and so many people contribute. 
And some, I think awesome. one of the, yeah, it's awesome. One of the comments was, you know, I'm reading Pauline Simons, but I'm reading an old one. And I said, no, every book is new, new. until you read it. Every book is new. That's what I'm saying. And that's what's incredible about the books. Now we have Tolly, which is now 26 years old. But that's we now right. have a new generation of readers waiting yeah. for, 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 you know, for Tolly too and for the Bronze Horseman. So what you want to do is you want to write a story that will survive the test of time, right? Yeah. They can stand against it. So that's why I try not to put uh, too many current events or politics in my stories because nothing dates a story rather than a lot of angst about some political event that nobody now knows about. Yeah, nobody can even remember what happened in 78. But, but Tully, it's like in 1848, James K. Polk really had a hard time putting his tariffs through Congress. Who remembers this now? But The Raven came out by Edgar Allan Poe, and everyone yeah. remembers that. So that's why I... Right. That's You're a wonderful storyteller. You we've got to wrap up. Um, okay. Keep writing. I want to... Thank just, you. Just before we wrap up, just quickly, do you write every day? Just to give us a writer's no. tip. Okay, so <laughs> oh, the, the writer's tip is different. My writer's tip is write every day, but I do not write every day. My writer's tip is do not do what I do, okay. which is but only because I become obsessed and then I can do nothing but write my books. My books become my life. So you don't want to go into that world until you're ready not to come out of it. But I do recommend very much to train yourself to write every day because if you write a page a day at the end of a year, you will have a book. So if you have a story, I do recommend that you do that. Paulina Simons, thank you so much. Cheryl, it's been a pleasure. Not long enough, but thank you. Oh, and but please, everyone, do read my End of Forever books because they mean a great, great deal to me. They broke my heart as I was writing them. I'm sure they will read them. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.